Good morning, church. As uh, my son so excitedly uh, did the announcements this morning, he had mentioned that uh, Pastor Mike uh, would not be here this morning, and he asked me to fill in in his stead. Um, so I'm honored, I'm, I'm privileged to be able to stand up here and to share the Word of God with you guys. So um, we're going to be in uh, Acts chapter 6 today, and the title of the teaching is Crosshairs. Uh, Pastor Jim, earlier when, when I put this up on the screen, he he uh, he made a funny joke, and I, I have to share it. He says, uh, so you're going to preach about angry rabbits? And uh, no, no, it's not about angry rabbits. Uh, I don't know if that's in the Bible at all. I don't think so. But anyways, uh, go ahead and turn uh, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. And uh, while you do that, let's go ahead and go to the Lord and ask him to bless this study. Uh, Father God, I, I thank you, Lord, for... Uh, Sunday morning that we get to come and gather and, and uh, uh, worship you, Father God. And uh, I, I thank you, Lord, uh, for that time of worship, Lord. I pray that you are blessed, uh, that you are honored in it, Father God. Uh, and, and as we open up your word, Father God, we, we pray that you would help us to, to read, to understand, to, to learn as much as we can every time uh, we have this book in front of us and, and the pages open, Father God. And uh, I pray that uh, the words that come out from my mouth, Lord, would be uh, nothing but your truth, Father God, uh, that you would take me out of it, and it's just all you, Lord, through your spirit. Uh, may you empower uh, th this uh, teaching this morning, and Father God, I ask that you would bless it. In Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, so this morning we'll be looking at, like I said before, Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. The passage focuses on a man named Stephen, who, as many of you probably know, would become the first Christian martyr. Uh, the violence that he was met with did not happen by accident. It wasn't like he was uh, accidentally and randomly struck with a stray stone. Uh, that, that's not what happened. The enemy would intentionally take aim at Stephen and shoot their shots at him. He was in the crosshairs for a reason. Uh, I would like for us to examine the passage and understand the kind of person that Stephen was and how that caused him to be a target of the enemy. So... Let's go ahead and jump into that. Uh, follow along as I read uh, Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. It says, Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedman's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen, but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes. So they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man never stopped speaking against the holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So as we, as we look at this passage, we'll, we'll notice how the um, enemies of, of Stephen uh, decided to take aim at, them, at him. Uh, already mentioned, Stephen found himself in the crosshairs. The Jews in this account deemed Stephen a threat. He was a big enough threat, in fact, that they thought it was necessary to eliminate him. 
And as we read, uh, as we read this, we might be scratching our heads to discern what exactly it was that Stephen did, what he could have possibly said that would have caused such a stir among the men in the community. A closer examination of verses 8, 10, and 15 reveal the character of Stephen and clue us in on why he was uh, so strongly opposed. As we delve into these verses, may we discover what sort of person does the enemy aim at? So paradoxically, being aimed at is something we should strive for, something our Christian walk should direct us towards. Obviously, no one enjoys the kind of attention that puts a target on his back, that puts him squarely in the crosshairs of the enemy. Nobody likes that, right? However, as unenjoyable as it may be uh, to be in such a situation, we should not shy away from being the sort of person that the enemy would take aim at. So looking again at verse 8, it says, Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. In verse 8, the text describes Stephen as a man full of grace and power. Obviously, we're not talking about physical grace. We're not talking about physical power here, right? The text is not saying that uh, he had the graceful movements of a professional gymnast or uh, even a ninja. We're not talking that he was a ninja. Uh, we shouldn't understand it that he, that he has physical power, like he could lift heavy objects over his head, like some sort of superhero. So Stephen wasn't that kind of hero, but he was a hero of another kind. And uh, his power, the power that he has, was derived from the Spirit of God. If we jump back to verse 5 in the same chapter, we read this. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Stephen was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So the two descriptions that we read are actually one and the same. They are synonymous with one another. Man, uh, Stephen was a man of faith, and therefore the grace of God was upon him. Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit, and therefore he was powerful in that way. He had the ability to speak the word of God with boldness and unwavering conviction. Notice also the word, full in these descriptions. Uh, when I hear that word, I, I think of a cup being filled with water to the brim, uh, maybe even spilling over, a cup that runneth over. Uh, contrast this with what Jesus says on more than one occasion of his disciples. We, we read this in the gospel accounts. Ye of little faith, in the King James, right? Uh, contrast this also with who I sometimes am. I can be a ye of little faith. Uh, if, and if my experience is anything typical of, of Christians, and I, I think it might be, uh, we tend to fluctuate from being full of faith to having little faith. And yet the Lord is so patient with us, isn't he? He's so gracious toward us when our faith goes down several notches. Uh, sometimes we're like Peter, right? And we're full of faith one moment, and we're ready to jump out of that boat, and we're ready to walk on that water with Jesus. And then before we know it, we're, we're ankle deep in the water, we're waist deep, then neck deep, and then we're thinking, how in the world did I get here? When we see the, the waves and, and the storm all around us, how in the world did I get here? We're in over our heads before we know it, and, and we're sinking, and we're about to go under. But then we have our Lord, right? And he finds our hands, and he pulls us up, and he gently rebukes, O oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? 
So let our times of doubt, when our episodes when we have little faith, let those end quickly as we remember the faithfulness of God. Let him rebuke us saying, I'm right here. Why do you doubt? I think that's the cure to the doubt that we experience. I think that's how we can be more often the man or woman full of faith like Stephen was and less often the man of little faith. We recall our own weakness of faith in the past and the unfailing, unending faithfulness of God toward us. The ways that God has pulled us up out of the waters and he tells us, I'm right here. No need to doubt. When we have this perspective, I believe that can help us more and more approach the goal of being full of faith like Stephen was. As we get back to the text that we were reading, uh, Stephen was full of faith and full of grace. Verse 8, as we see here, also says that he was full of power. Um, the book of Ephesians tells us, and there's even a song that we sing in church sometimes, and the lyrics remind us that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power at work within those who believe. But what exactly does that mean? What did it mean for Stephen back then? And what does that mean for us today? As I mentioned, this verse is linked to verse 5, which we saw a minute ago. And the power that Stephen is, is full of has to do with him being full of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who empowered Stephen is the same Holy Spirit who empowers believers even today. But what is the power that we have? I've noticed as, as I've studied and, and heard people talk that there, there can be confusion regarding this concept. What is the power that I have as a believer in Christ? What supernatural abilities are available to the ones in whom the Spirit of God dwells? Am I faster than a speeding bullet? Can I leap tall buildings in a single bound? That's Superman, guys, for you younger ones out there. Not quite. Uh, so uh, I want to... I wanna, Look at Ephesians for a little while, and we're going we're gonna to park right there for a little bit uh, to kind of get an idea of what's going on here. Uh, Ephesians 1 uh, says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance of the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. First off, the power described is, is immeasurably great. Anything God does, anything that God is, is immeasurably great. There's no mediocre. There's no so-so. There's no halfway. There's no meh. There's no just okay with God. Nothing like that. Remember the creation account. And each day of creation concluded with God declaring that the thing that he did was good. Not good enough, but good, meaning it was perfect. Here in Ephesians, Paul describes how God flexes his muscle and his might and thereby makes his strength known to his people as he works in them and through them. In these verses, Paul tells the Ephesian church that he desires believers to know and to understand his great power, the great power God has toward us. So before anything else, we need to acknowledge that the power we speak of is from 
God. And it's not from us. It's not anything that we do in our pathetic strength. It's all God, right? And the purpose of it is to accomplish His will, not our own will. So if we continue reading in Ephesians 1, verse 20, He exercised His power in Christ by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at the right hand in the heavens. So Paul gets specific. In case anyone is unclear about how great and awesome and mighty and immeasurable the power is, uh, he explains that the very same power that raised Christ from the dead, the miracle of the resurrection, the foundation of our faith, it's the same power we're talking about here. The Bible states in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain. So this is foundational. And, and even more than that, if we continue going in Ephesians chapter 1, here we go, it says, For above every ruler and authority and power and dominion and every tile given, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So if that description of God's power doesn't like blow you away, mind blown, you know, I'm not sure what will. This is mind-blowing power of God, and it gets applied to little old me. That's amazing, right? But then again, so we, we understand that there's this great power that God applies to us, but how, you might be wondering. Again, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for the believers? Okay, then we go to Ephesians chapter 2. We keep reading. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. And we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh, thoughts, and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. So the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and made him alive again is the power that raises spiritually dead men and women and makes them alive in Christ. Considering all the details given in the passage about our spiritual deadness, going back uh, a couple of verses, uh, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, that we lived according to the ways of the world, according to the power of uh, the ruler of the power of the air, that we're disobedient, that we were all about our fleshly desires, that we were carrying about in our uh, sinful flesh and our thoughts, and we were children under wrath. So all of that, if we consider all of that, uh, the power that made these dead men and women alive in Christ is quite the power, right? It's a great magnitude of power. So Think of it this way. We don't get like super speed. We don't get super strength as believers. It's way better than that. We get life. We get life in Christ. It's breaking the chains and the shackles that kept us bound. It's the ability to kill sin in our lives and live for God. It's the ability to cast off the old man and put on Christ. So skipping ahead, one more verse in Ephesians says this. Verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So, 
this kind of sums everything up. The power that we receive from on high gives us the ability to do good works that God has tasked us with. We have the power through the Holy Spirit living in us to do the jobs God has assigned us. And if we didn't have that, we'd be complete failures. But God saw fit not only to assign these good works for us to do, for his glory, but he also gives us the ability to do these good works for his glory. We are empowered by the Spirit living in us, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the grave, to do the will of God. I, I think that's amazing. That's an amazing privilege that God would do that and, and use us in that way. So going back to our text in Acts, uh, again, verse 8, Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So the text does say that Stephen was also able to perform great wonders and signs. And we are not told specifically what sort of things he was able to do when he performed these wonders and signs. Um, and, and the reason, I think, is because that's not the focus, right? Stephen being able to do signs and wonders is not the point. The signs and wonders are not the main thing. And the purpose of the signs and the wonders uh, was to draw attention to the message that Stephen had. The purpose was to bring ears over to, to Stephen to hear what he was saying about Jesus. Signs and wonders also was God telling the people that Stephen was the real deal, that he uh, was worth listening to because his words were true. So uh, with that, I want to I give a word of caution about signs and wonders. Okay? We, we as Christians should not concern ourselves with signs and wonders, either by finding and following men who claim to be able to perform signs and wonders, or by worrying whether we ourselves have such abilities. That shouldn't be our concern. And I bet you've heard of these guys who, who say they can perform signs and wonders, and they'll even go as far as to say, hey, if this guy over here doesn't, doesn't do signs, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. That's what these guys say, right? And what I would say is that you would do well to mark and avoid such teachers as them. You would do well to learn from preachers and teachers who teach the word of God and who point people to the only sign, the only wonder worth being amazed by, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. So if they're, if they're not preaching that, if they're preaching their own signs and wonders, you need to avoid, you need to stop listening and find someone who teaches the word of God. Right? So Stephen performing signs and wonders should not be taken as a blueprint of how things work now in the church. Rather, what needs to be sought after is spirit-empowered preaching of the Word of God. Any church that would prioritize signs and wonders has wandered far from the mission Christ gave the first generation of Christians. That mission, be my witnesses, make disciples, teach them to obey all I have commanded. So, Stephen's opponents weren't interested in matching or refuting his signs and wonders. They were attempting, in vain, by the way, to refute his message. We read this in verse 10. They were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. So Stephen, full of grace, what we've seen so far, full of faith, full of power, full of the Holy Spirit, that's quite the resume so far, uh, he was also full of wisdom. Stephen ended up in the crosshairs because he spoke with a wisdom that defied everything those unbelieving Jews thought to be true. This was a wisdom that came from God. In fact, all wisdom, if it's truly wisdom, 
can only come from God. And God has promised to destroy the so-called wisdom of this world. So where is the person who is wise according to the world's standards? Right? You can send the best and brightest that the world has to offer. They can come with their PhDs and decades of education. Right, They can bring all that they have. But in the end, they're going to be made to look silly. They will be destroyed, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of what, of what is preached. So this is how God destroys the wisdom of the wise, the wisdom of the world. This is how God defeats the world's wisdom, the preaching of the word. The foolishness, and that's, that's in quotes, right? The foolishness of the cross. The message of salvation. That's what Stephen did, and that's what we as Christians need to do. We need to preach the cross. We need to preach salvation, preach Jesus. So as we return to uh, Acts chapter 6, another thing it says about Stephen, it says, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him, and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So Stephen had an angel face, according to... Uh, to me, this is like an interesting and, and kind of confusing phrase to describe Stephen. So what, what does it mean? What does it mean that he had the face of an angel? Did it mean that his face was exceedingly beautiful? Uh, possibly it could have been, but I don't think that's what the... Uh, Versus is trying to communicate to us. Uh, was it that his face was aglow, similar to Moses when he t returned to the children of Israel after having been in the presence of God? Uh, he, he probably didn't have that going on. He probably didn't have his face glowing. Uh, I don't think that's what the text intended, but I think we're getting closer to what it means. So if we think about angels, there's a number of things that come up. Angels are close to God. The Bible tells us that angels view the face of the Father in heaven. They are continually in the presence of God. And in, in, in an analogous way, Stephen, being full of faith, full of grace, full of the Spirit, uh, Stephen was seen to be a man close to God. And may we be men and women who are seen by others as being close to God. Uh, another thing, angels are representatives of, of God. The Bible gives us several accounts in which an angel is sent by God to act on his behalf. Stephen preached and performed wonders on behalf of God. As Christians, we also represent God here on the earth. The Bible tells us that we are ambassadors of Christ. When a person declares himself to be a Christian, his words, his actions, his entire being is linked to the name of Jesus. And I think that's a very heavy responsibility when you think about it, right? So may we represent him well, whatever we do, wherever we go. Um, another thing about angels, that they are messengers from God. The Bible tells us of unsuspecting men and women encountering an angelic messenger. And they have to be told, fear not. 
right? So once a person gets over the shock and amazement and the fear and trembling involved in encountering an angel, uh, the angel delivers that important message that God has for him. Uh, Stephen preached the word of God. He took the message of the gospel to the people. And in that way, he was like an angel. Uh, and we also have the privilege of participating in this message delivery activity. We are tasked by Jesus himself, Christians throughout all the ages are tasked by Jesus himself to spread the gospel so that it reaches the ends of the earth. So this is what Spurgeon says of our sacred duty. He said, the divine, this divine choice of human instrumentality puts honor upon manhood. Those redeemed by the blood of Christ are men and their redemption from sin by power is to be instrumentally accomplished by men. The great fight which began in the Garden of Eden is to be waged by men even to the end. The conquest of the revolt, revolted world is to be achieved by men under the leadership of the all-glorious Son of Man. See your calling, brethren. I pray everyone to preach the gospel in your vocation but especially what I plead for, for zeal with those whose very vocation it is to preach the gospel. And what a vocation it is ours. What can be more honorable? What can be more, uh, what more responsible? To rule empires is a trifle compared to the speaking, compared with speaking to the people all the words of this life. Lord, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visit him? Thou makest him, him higher than the angels in this respect, that out of his mouth thou, shalt, thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies. Such honor have all the saints, for they, for they may all either teach or preach Christ Jesus. And I think that's a, that's a big responsibility, uh, an honor to be able to do that. And finally... Uh, uh, the last thing about the angels is that they are warriors for God. The Bible gives us several instances of warfare in which angels are involved. They fight for God. They are in battle against evil. Stephen was ready to fight for God, right? He was willing to take on an angry mob of the enemy. Only Stephen was not equipped with shield and sword. And we don't require such weaponry in our battle with the enemy. As we, don't, we don't need that either. Rather, as it says in 2 Corinthians 10, although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Okay, so it's also interesting to note that this description of Stephen as having the face of an angel is actually from the perspective of his opposition. Verse 15 states that they looked at him and they saw it. They acknowledged Stephen's relationship to God, yet they still opposed him. Unbelievable, right? They knew who he was, yet they would stone him. Now this is Pharaoh-level stubbornness right here. Remember, Pharaoh continued to fight against God, even though his land and his people were being devastated by the plagues. And in the same way, these men opposed Stephen, and they did so knowing that they were fighting against God. 
which oh there was 15 again uh which leads to the next uh part of this which um the shots are fired now that Stephen is in the crosshairs and the tar target is locked the enemy opens fire we're going to look at how they attempt to shoot Stephen down and while doing so may we address the question how does the enemy try to shoot us down uh, so here are verses 9 and 10 in chapter 6. In these verses, we meet the opposition and discover how they first attempt to take Stephen down. So it says, Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. So the opposition arises from various areas, and we have men converging and just to gang up on Stephen, right? And these aren't the usual guys that we've read about in Acts so far uh, who have been giving the Christians a hard time. Up to this point, it's been uh, religious leaders, uh, chief priests, Sadducees. Those are the kinds of people that are opposing the Christians earlier on. Uh, now it's Jews that have formed some sort of alliance to oppose Stephen, uh, one noteworthy opponent of Stephen uh, in, in this bunch is a man that we will get to know really well as we read through the book of Acts and actually through the rest of the Bible. He is none other than the man called Saul from Tarsus, a town located in Cilicia. So after Stephen's sermon, which takes up, um, if you continue reading on in Acts, it takes up most of chapter 7. Uh, after the sermon, we are told that this Saul was among the men present. Saul has quite the resume himself, and he writes about it uh, in, in the Bible, uh, in, uh, in Philippians. It says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, upstanding with regard to the law, zealous for the Jewish religion to the point that he became the most ardent persecutors of the Christian church. And if, you, if you've read Philippians, you, you remember what he says of all of his credentials. He said that they amounted to a hill of beans. Actually, it, he, what he said was a, a, a hill or, or a pile of something else, right? And what he wants people to get is that the most important thing in this life, what is of far greater value than anything else, be it power, pedigree, prestige, or passion for one's religion even, what's more valuable than any of that is knowing Christ. And that's what Stephen had, right? He knew Christ as Savior. And that's the same thing we have. We know Jesus Christ as Savior. And that simple fact can provoke strong reactions in the unbelievers. Whether they're members of the Freedman Synagogue or members of the Synagogue of the Cyrenians, uh, Alexandrians, or members of your own family, or members of, uh, or co-workers, I should say, um, this reaction is usually directly proportional to the extent a person wears his Christianity on his sleeve, right? And I'm not talking about literal clothing here, right? Because it takes more than just a, a, a Jesus t-shirt or a baseball cap, right? I'm talking about the way a person displays his devotion to Jesus. And as we read, Stephen was all in. He was chosen among others to serve the church in a special way. And it was based on the kind of person that he was. He had wisdom and power that comes from the Spirit of God. He is certainly a man to be emulated. And he certainly became a polarizing figure as we see here. 
The unbelieving Jews were not content to complain among themselves, so they decided that they needed to take action, and shots were fired. If we read verse 9, it says that these men began to argue with Stephen. The enemy tried to refute Stephen's claims about Jesus. They tried to engage Stephen in some sort of rhetorical back and forth, probably in order to discredit him, to show everyone all, all around, everyone in attendance, that Stephen was a, a mad lunatic for what he was saying. And, he, th- and he, th- he should either be laughed off the stage or be locked in a cell and throw away the key, right? Uh, but try as they might have, the verse tells us that they could not, verse 10 says that they could not stand up to Stephen. And Stephen was not about to back off. He was not about to run away or play dead or hide under a bed. You can bet as the enemy shot at him with these arguments that Stephen was shooting back. Think back when Jesus was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days following his baptism. At this point, Jesus is physically weak. And the devil took the opportunity to tempt him, to throw his fiery darts at the Son of God. So physically weak, however spiritually strong, was Jesus in this showdown, this duel, this shootout. Satan took his shots, and he even misuses Scripture in the process. And I can imagine the men opposing Stephen also employed this tactic, the misuse, misapplication of Scripture in their argumentation. Church, I'm telling you that the enemies of our day do the exact same thing. And I want us all to be aware that there are false teachers out there. And they will tell you lies while they hold a Bible in their hands. They will tell you that what they say comes from Scripture. And they'll even quote a verse or two in a so-called sermon. But it's not just false teachers that do this. We got politicians and celebrities. They will invoke the Bible as they try to convince you to vote a certain way or join a certain cause or engage in a certain activity. So don't fall for these ploys. When Jesus, when Satan told Jesus, well, the scriptures say this, so you should listen to me and, and do what I say. What did Jesus do? He tells Satan, nope, you're wrong. Now he might be saying the words, but he's got the meaning all wrong. Here's what God's word really says, right? And I can imagine a, a similar type of discussion happening between Stephen and his opponents, right? I can imagine Stephen telling these very religious, very learned men standing in a circle around him, haven't you read the scriptures, right? Jesus did that a bunch of times, right? He would, he would tell the uh, Pharisees opposing him, uh, sometimes he would say, haven't you read the scriptures? Right? I would say, bro, do you even Bible? That's how I would put it. Uh, what is it, which is what we need to do, right? We don't, not those words exactly, but we need to do when we encounter a false teacher, right? People who claim that the Bible teaches this or that, and it really does it, we need to be able to uh, answer them with Scripture. Because they'll, they'll tell you that the Bible teaches prosperity gospel and that we should all be uh, if we believe in Jesus and have enough faith that we should have lots of money and, and all of that, and we should tell these people that is wrong. That's not what the Bible says. We'll have some uh, Christians or so-called Christians uh, tell you that the Bible teaches evolutionary theory so that we and the scientists can all get along because it's all the same thing. But if we read in Genesis, it doesn't say that. And we can tell them, no, that's wrong. And then we'll have 
uh, all of these, um, again, so-called Christians, and, and they'll say that the, the Bible doesn't condemn this type of lifestyle. The Bible actually affirms people who want to do this with their lives. And we can say, no, that's, that's just the new debauchery that the, that the culture has decided it approves of, but the Bible doesn't approve of it. And we can tell them, no, you're wrong, right? So we should not be shy about calling them out. Teachers, the teachers and the teachings both, we say wrong. Here's what the Bible really says. So I can imagine that Stephen said something similar. He shot back with wisdom that can only come from the Holy Spirit. And the opponents that he encountered were no match for his words. Verse 10 says that they couldn't stand Stephen. They couldn't stand against Stephen anymore. Nor could they stand Stephen anymore. Which is why we get to this last part. That the members of the Freedmen Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, they, these guys all regrouped and redoubled their efforts to take Stephen out. They were unable to beat Stephen in a fair fight, so they resort to some unsavory and underhanded tactics. The methods that they use are despicable, but they were effective, right? And it reveals the general attitude of the enemy toward us, the links that they will go, the depths that they will sink to undermine the cause of Christ. However, we know how the story ends, that we are victorious in Christ. So when the bad guys are ready to do their worst, how do we respond when we are shot at? Let's review uh, verses 11 through 14. It says, when they, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, so they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man never stopped speaking against the holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. So we have accusations and we have false witnesses. Does that sound familiar? It should. The same was done to Jesus himself, proving the maxim that the servant is no greater than the master. Recall the trial Jesus endured following his arrest in the garden. All sorts of accusations were leveled against the Son of God. False witnesses were brought to witness falsely against Jesus, charging him with all sorts of awful things, including and most notably the charge of blasphemy. A mob was incited against Jesus, which later chanted for him to be crucified. And then here we see that Stephen received similar treatment. Verses 11 through 15 show that Stephen was seized and dragged before the religious authorities, that accusations were thrown at him, that false witnesses were paraded before the Sanhedrin. He was even accused of blasphemy. And if I'm like Stephen... If I'm Stephen, I'm like, what? I'm not blaspheming God. I would never do that. And I never said anything about Jesus destroying or changing things. You've got me all wrong. And I think the tendency for most people, if you're like me, is to defend themselves against the onslaught of slander. Let me clear the air and clear my name. Just give me a chance to explain and no one needs to be mad at me anymore. Then everyone will like me again. See, here's the problem. The motivation here is to get off the naughty list because 
it just looks bad to be on that list, and it feels bad. The opinions of others become more important than the proclamation of truth, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. It becomes, I don't care what you think about Jesus, just don't think bad of me. We repent to the mob rather than to God. So Stephen was not that way. If we read on in Acts, Stephen does not stay silent. He actually has a lot of things to say. However, the content of his speech was not, hey guys, don't be mad at me. Put down those stones. I'm sorry you don't like what I said. Please forgive me. He didn't say anything like that. Instead, he gives a history lesson, a Bible lesson filled with convicting truth. He did not comp compromise for the sake of peace or even to, ha to avoid having stones thrown at him. He simply said, look, here's what the Bible says. Stephen then serves as an example for us to follow when we are on the receiving end of accusations from false witnesses. More generally, whenever an evil person does something evil to us, Stephen is an example, but he himself is following another's example. Here's what Peter writes in his first epistle. He says, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Skipping over to verse 15, For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. So we are to conduct ourselves with honor. We are to do good works. And by doing so, we are appointing people to God. We are doing good, living in obedience to God. That's how we respond to evildoers. But you may be thinking, that doesn't always work, right? In fact, maybe most of the time, it doesn't work, right? The opposition continues to speak evil, to oppose, to slander, and to lie. It doesn't always stop them, right? The enemy isn't silenced by my holy conduct. He isn't impressed with me at all, right? But then we continue reading in First Peter chapter 2. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. We endure poor treatment. We endure false allegations. We endure being aimed at and shot at because it is pleasing to God. It brings favor with God. It is what our Savior did. If anyone had reason to turn around and strike back harder, it was the Lord. It was Jesus. But he didn't. He endured it. He took it. He despised the shame for the glory set before him. The joy that he was doing the will of the Father. So church, as men and women who desire to live godly lives, who desire to live in obedience to God, who follow Christ no matter where it takes us, we will become targets of the enemy. The enemy will take aim 
and will shoot at us. And when they and when that doesn't knock us down, they'll come back harder. However, our call is to follow the example Christ set for us. For we will please and glorify our Father in heaven when we do this. And as you know, Stephen would go on to be a martyr. He would be the first, but he would certainly not be the last. Throughout history and even to the present day, men and women have followed Stephen, giving their lives for the cause of Christ. Church, may we all be willing to do the same. Let's go ahead and pray to God. He gives us the strength to do that. And Father God, I thank you, Lord, for um, just the words that you have in the Bible for us to read. And, and this man that we studied in, in the passage, uh, Stephen, who, who's such an example for us, Lord, to, to, to follow. But we realize that he is, is following the example of Jesus. So, Lord, may we follow the example of Jesus, Lord. May we not uh, shy away from being the men and women that you have called us to be just because others may not like it, Lord, for for we desire to please you and to honor you and to glorify you. And we desire to obey you and not men, Father God. So I thank you, Lord, that we uh, have examples like this in the Bible of men and women who, who stand up bravely for the cause of Christ, Lord. And may that motivate us, may that encourage us to do the same wherever we're at, no matter what. Lord, I, I, I thank you that uh, you use us, Father God. You use us um, to, to speak truth to others. You use us in a variety of ways, Lord. And you also give us tasks to do that are uh, impossible for us to do, if not for your Holy Spirit, Lord. You give us your Spirit. You empower us to do the jobs that we cannot do on our own. To stand firm, to, to be strong when, when we are weak and we're ready to fall, Lord, you are there and you empower us and you give us strength. So I thank you for that, Lord. And uh, as, as we leave this place, Lord, uh, help us to continue to uh, think on, to meditate on, on your words, Father God. I thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.